I'm Kevin Power, and this is Sascapes, the podcast featuring stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. This episode is sponsored by the Saskatchewan Association of Theatre Professionals. With a vision of a dynamic and unified community of theatre professionals, the SATP is on a mission to be an effective advocate for theatre professionals, building a strong network between its members and their theatre communities and stakeholders. Along with increasing public awareness of professional theatres and theatre professionals in Saskatchewan, the SATP works with its members to advance skills and creative development through training and mentorship initiatives. Inclusivity, creativity and respect. Words that define the vision they have and informs the work that they do. You'll find a link to their website in the show notes. I'd also like to thank Creative Saskatchewan for your support of the SATP and also your help in making this podcast happen. So long 2020 and hello 2021. Happy New Year, dear listeners. Well, I can't think of a better way to start off the new year than with a brand new Sascapes podcast episode, particularly with this guest. I can't wait. He's one of Saskatchewan's most treasured veteran actors, directors, and teachers. Henry Wolfe's career spans over 60 years. This conversation's been on my wish list since Sascapes began in 2014. It's kind of a stroll down memory lane of Henry's early theatre experiences as a young man, his academic journey, his impressive body of work, and his relationship with playwright Harold Pinter. Since Henry came to Saskatoon in the early 1980s, he's had an unmistakable impact on the theatre landscape in our city and province-wide. My conversation with Henry is about life and how it informs our work as actors. It's sort of a light-hearted, philosophical chat, to say the least. So, let the curtain rise and let the conversation begin. He's a friend, he's a fellow misfit of the theatre. Henry Wolf. thank you for joining me on a nice, warm Sunday morning where we're all comfy and cosy and ready to have a good chat. Well, Kevin, it's a great honor to be here with you, dear Kevin. And you're a fine actor yourself, you know. Oh, well, I do what I can. Ah, that's what we all have to do. I tell you what I've just written down in my journal. Yes. How much I think that dogma, any kind of dogma, may be initially an advantage in giving one an ideology or a theory of something, whether it is acting or soldiering or teaching or being a priest 
Dogma is a great help initially. It clears the path of undergrowth. But in the end, it becomes a handicap, a handicap and a drawback, because dogma may be all very well for certain situations, but actors have to be ready, don't you think, Kevin, for all situations, not just one. I'll give you an example, and you will be familiar with it, of course, that the dogma of the method, the Stanislavski method, Mm -hmm. which permeates all North American acting, is initially a wonderful tool with which to examine a text and a part, but in the end can be very inappropriate for what one has to do. And in the end, the good actor realizes this, having played various parts, some of which dogma and the method is wonderfully suited to, some of which they are not suited at all. And then the actor realizes that if he or she is any good, they will adapt to the demands of the text and the style of the play. For example, Dogma is wonderful for nearly all, say, Arthur Miller's plays. Wonderful, splendid, made for the plays. It's wonderful for Chekhov, for slightly different reasons. Wonderful for Chekhov and superb Russian plays like that. But, for example, what happens when you see some of the plays by Bertolt Brecht? They demand that the actor steps back and gives utterance to what the words say. His or her personality or interpretation is irrelevant and gets in the way. What is needed is the clarity of thought and the clarity of the words. And that's true of many plays. For example, I'm just taking part in a a whole discussion group that goes on for months about the plays of Harold Pinter. And people talk about the style, the style that is needed. As if once one has opened the door of style, all secrets will be revealed. What a word I prefer to style is instinct. And for example, this is just one example, all plays that are written in blank verse or verse demand only that one can immediately sense the rhythm and the meaning of the text and let it breathe. Let the text breathe. Method can be of great use. I mean, just look, just to contradict myself, And I think everybody who holds forth like myself at this moment in a pompous way, (laughs) like me, (laughs) should have examples that totally contradict what he just said. If you look at Marlon Brando's performance in the film of Julius Caesar, he's Mark Antony, I think, and he goes, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. And he, possibly one of the great exemplars of the method approach, delivers that speech wonderfully. Partly, or mostly maybe, because above and above and all uh, dogma, above the method dogma, are his brilliant instincts as an actor. And in Pinto too, 
For example, people don't seem to realize that though Harold wrote hundreds of plays, you know, I knew him very well, and uh, uh, hundreds of poems, not plays, poems, but he also wrote many plays. And some of his plays are the best prose poems one could imagine. Well, I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to interrupt you there, just because um, you've you've brought to mind a few things, and then we're going to backtrack a bit because you're getting to a point where I would like to get to sort of mid conversation with you. But what you were saying Shad, about you what, what you were like. saying about dogma and and perhaps another word that comes to mind for me is methodology reminds me of a a master class that I took um, with uh, a voice teacher, Joan Dorman. Um, and I remember her saying to a singer she was working with, my dear, technique is wonderful, but when it comes time to step out on stage, nobody wants to see you doing your homework. You must give yourself over to the text. Give yourself over to the words, to the moments, to your fellow actors, and trust that your instincts will hold you fast and that perhaps 60% of your technique remains with you, but above all, never lose track of the word. And I think, I think that's quite right. I think that dogma and methodology really is an important study, but in the end, you're right. We must have that flexibility to be able to act in the moment. If we are not in the moment, then we do deprive ourselves, and we deprive the audience of the true meaning of theatre, I think. Hey, it's Kevin. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that the Sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app, or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. When Sascapes launched in May 2014, it was the first podcast in the province celebrating arts, culture, and heritage. In fact, you'd have been pretty hard-pressed to find any Saskatchewan podcast. So I'd like to think that we paved the way. It's been because of your support that this podcast is now in its ninth year. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Well, Kevin, there's a word of great wisdom, and I'm very glad that I agree with her and you. Absolutely true, because one of the great things, as you know, and uh, too well for me to repeat, but you know that those words you just use, the moment, the living moment that is exchanged between the actors and each other and the actors and the audience can never be recaptured. So true. Living moment. And I there's one phenomenon of the theatre, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, that in the average play, an audience, say, comes into a theatre with, like I was just acting in a theatre a few months ago in England, with uh, 
750 seats. And the people who came to the play were people, I imagine, with a good idea of themselves, a good idea of their place in life, a good idea of uh, who they were. Within half an hour or 20 minutes, if the play is any good, and usually the plays in the West End of London and the National Theatre, where we were at the time, are very good, and the casts are very good. This amazing phenomenon takes place that these 750 individuals merge into one single organism with the extraordinary effect of the energy produced by these 750 souls making turned into one power plant. And that's why actors, however exhausted they are, can draw on such energy from the audience. You remind me of um, a concert that I attended uh, with violist Rivka Galani, who was premiering um, a new work by composer Peter Paul Koprowski. She said, we have a great privilege tonight because tonight... We all together in this room will experience something that will never, ever be repeated. We will never experience and hear the music the same way as we do in this moment because of the group of people that are in this space, the temperature of the theater, the way I play, the way the orchestra plays. All of these variables play into the fact that this moment is singular and never to be repeated. And I just, I never forgot that because it really... It reminded me of the magic that is performance, that it is, it is truly a moment that, that can never be duplicated. I suppose it's like a snowflake. You can never quite duplicate it twice the same that's way. And that's why you, it's so interesting to say that because unlike film, and they're wonderful film actors and so forth, unlike film, your performer you speak of absolutely caught the image you made of a snowflake. That is the moment, the living moment that happens now and can never be quite recaptured. But we'll come to that later. Now, Kevin, ask me something of brilliant insight or of no insight at all oh, or anything you like. Put no pressure on me, Henry. Let's back up and... Um get a little bit of a, paint a little bit of a picture of how life brought you to these theatrical philosophies and life philosophies and when they first sat in and resided with you as a being. Um, now, fact or fiction, you were born in Holborn, London. Is that true? Oh, well, I was. That's absolutely true. Holborn, I should say, is midway between the city business district and the east end of London, where I, I was uh, brought up in the east end of London in a large Georgian house that was slowly being allowed to fall apart. And the Germans in the end of the war dropped a bomb very near it and uh, sort of blew the roof off. And we had to move out, of course. 
But um, that's another story. But that's where I was born. And something that might interest you and your listeners is that I was the youngest of a family. Well, I had uh, five brothers and sisters. and But I was the youngest. And my father said to me, Henry, you are about to go to school. You're coming up to five. We used to exchange very frank discussions with each other, as far as I could understand them. And he said, Henry, I'm going to keep you away from school as much as I can. And I said, but I've been looking forward to go. He said, yes, and I'll certainly let you go any time you want to. But you see, I can teach you so much more than school can. I'll tell you what school in a modern school is for. It's for turning out wage slaves and soldiers at the moment. The war is coming up, you know. Everybody knew the Second World War was going to happen. I was born in 1930, you see. And it wasn't coming up quite in 1935. But the next year, my father showed me a picture of German soldiers reoccupying the Rhineland, which he saw as German territory and had been given, taken away from them in the Versailles Treaty after the First World War. And my father turned to me and said, this means war, you know, Henry. He was so right. But that was three years in coming. From then on, we listened to the, over the next few years, as I got older, I was eight or nine, and we listened to the growing defeat of the Republican government. And I remember feeling desperately sad as over the radio one heard, and the radio was the great means of communication. Then, of course, there was no television. There were books and newspapers, but the radio, and over the radio one would hear Madrid, the Spanish capital, held by the Republicans, is falling. And it didn't fall in a week or two. It took months of bitter fighting. And I felt, I didn't realize that as a little boy, I could feel desperately sad about something outside myself. And I realized something, Kevin, that occurred to me very strongly in the Second World War, when we looked as if we were done for in England, where it looked like we were bound to lose. And I remember feeling a terrible uh, despair, actually. I didn't realize that little boys and girls could feel despair, and I realized that they hide despair. They know it's inappropriate for a child, but they can feel it all right. And I remember on my 12th birthday, my father took me to see a pantomime, a jolly pantomime, Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. It was wonderful. And he took me to a cafe for a cream tea. It was my birthday. And on the paper, lying on the one of the tables in the cafe, was a newspaper with the headline, 180,000 tons of Allied shipping sunk by U-boats this month. And it was early in the war. The Allies, well, they had won one victory, the Battle of Britain, which prevented a German invasion when the German Air Force was defeated. But that was the only 
time the Germans were defeated for years, they won every war, every battle. But I didn't show that to my father. I just said, oh, what a marvelous pantomime. Oh, lovely. And I ate a cream cake. And I realized then that uh, despair was part of one's human makeup. And that's enough for me about despair for the moment. Was that panto your first theatrical memory, or had you been to live theater prior to that? Well, I'm glad you asked me. No, I hadn't. Well, I, I had been, but it hadn't meant much. And then in 1944, quite late in 1944, the, my parents took me to see a play by George Bernard Shaw the, um, called Arms and the Man. And it was a play. Here we were at the end of a bitter war. It was, I think it was February 1945. In the end of a bitter war. And the British were putting on with the most brilliant cast they could assemble. Lawrence Olivier, Sir Ralph Richardson, uh, all kinds of brilliant actors. A play that mocked war, which said a lot for the British, I thought. But... My parents took me there, and there were 750 of us crammed into the theatre in the West End of London. It was called the New Theatre then. And it was so full, we had to sit on the stairs. And it was in the middle of a very heavy air raid. And the air raid wasn't by bombers. It was by pilotless planes and rockets. The Germans were using a pilotless plane a pilotless plane that was a model for the American cruise missile. It flew, guided by a predetermined uh, direction and a cutout point with a 2,000-pound bomb in its nose. It flew at about 400 miles an hour, very fast for a, t- a, player that, a plane of that time. And they, hundreds of them were launched at London and following them, were um, V-2 rockets, a 60-foot-long rocket with a 2,000-pound bomb in its nose, and there was no defense against the rockets, although the flying bombs could be shot down. And on this night in February, the theater shook with explosions. The plaster was falling from the ceiling, and there was a huge chandelier over the orchestra pit where the stalls, where they, some of the more expensive seats were, and the chandelier swung from side to side, and everybody on stage, off stage, backstage, were risking their lives. And it was the most exciting moment of my life till then, and it made ordinary life look like uh, nothing. Milk and water. It was so heightened, partly because plays, of course, heighten and compress life. And uh, it was wonderfully exciting. The actors were wonderful. And Olivia, I remember, between explosions, with the plaster falling about him, he was playing Sergius Saranoff, a comical character, and he would say, I never apologize. And it was an exciting moment, Kevin, to go into the theatre. First of all, I I can't even imagine um, absorbing a theatrical experience with all of that going on around you outside and feeling it inside. Was there 
a moment then during that production, or was it during the panto or subsequent productions? When was the moment that you can recall your your inner voice saying, "I must do this. This this I must follow. Uh, this this business of acting." Can you recall that? Well, the thing is this: that I realized, like reading a marvelous book, that life could be lived at a heightened level. And suddenly, I was aware that it was possible to live like that. And then all those instincts became uh, submerged in the business of uh, growing up. But I always felt it. And then at school, we had a marvelous, uh, what you would call a grade 11, grade 12 teacher in Canada, Joe Brearley. And he directed the school plays. And I formed friendships there that lasted me all my life. We had a gang of sort of six of us. And uh, we were friends for 60 years. And every one of them are dead now except me. This is the Hackney uh, Browns. Is this the Hackney Brown School? Yes, the Hackney Gang. Hack- and the Hackney yes, the Hackney Down School. school, yes. And that's right. And we... Um, sort of went around together and we quoted plays all the time to each other and books and anything that excited us. We didn't have any money to speak of. Nobody did in those days. That didn't matter. We'd walk around talking. I remember Pinter was the great leader of our gang and he played all the leads in the school plays. He was a good, very good actor and a very good athlete. He broke the school... 100 yards and 200 yards records. He bowled, he played soccer terribly brilliantly, but he was also a poet and a writer. And he'd take us to films we'd never seen or heard of before, avant-garde films like Un Chien Andalou, Le Sang d'un Poète, and Large Door, all surrealist films, and other brilliant non sorrowless films like Odd Man Out and wonderful plays too. And I remember we'd quote things, one of Harold's favorite lines, our master, the master I mentioned to you, Joe, really, took us to see. Now, if you ask for a moment when suddenly the experience of the wartime air raid crystallized into a real desire to take part is Joe Brearley took us to see a play by John Webster called The um, Duchess of Malfi. And Webster is so brilliant. I mean, brilliant in a slightly, uh, quite a different way from Shakespeare, although he wrote, of course, at the same time, or overlapping time, and he wrote these brilliant plays, but sometimes his lines with views can only be his and nobody else's. Harold was very fond. They're very savage and very bloody and very obsessed with death. And I remember Harold loved to say, the time is ripe for the fatal audit and the bloody gripe. And when we saw this play, that's when, if you ask me for one moment, I thought, I have to take part in this. And then I eventually joined the very same company that 
Harold Kintra joined about three years after him. It was a, a marvelous company. We did eight different Shakespeare plays a week. And, <laughs> and Harold had done the same before. So I did have Harold as an example, as it were. Now, when did you go on to uh, study your, your Bachelor of Arts at the University of London, and then subsequently um, you did some postgraduate courses in directing at the University of Bristol? Did that happen after that? Uh, yes, it happened. You see, that was at high school when Joe Brearley took us to the theatre. But then I went off and I did a degree, and then I went to America and was at a, an American university for a year, an exchange student, and I acted there. And that was the first time I played a lead, and I suddenly realized how exciting it was and how it liberated one from ordinary life into a world of, well, you might call it imagination or fantasy or an opportunity for one's submerged imagination, which after all isn't very useful often in everyday life, catching buses, eating meals, going to bed, suddenly the opportunity, the unconscious opportunity of leading an imaginative life. It's so amazingly illuminating. Uh, Kevin, has it ever struck you why actors, professional actors, embrace a life of terrible insecurity and frequent poverty? One reason is that the actor, the professional actor, unlike almost any other profession, realizes they are not only one person. They have many different personalities within them, and they don't just need the costumes and the language to awaken them. The whole experience of the theatre, plus the costume and the language, excites these other characters within one, and they can lead, if they are employed enough, wonderfully exciting lives other than their own. I mean, no one can really imitate the performance, if you like, of any ordinary person you see in the street, although I don't think there is such a thing as an ordinary person. Given the opportunity, I think nearly everyone I've met is an extraordinary person. And an ordinary person, how can one possibly imitate exactly their, the way they walk, the way they talk, their hair, their manner, and so forth. But within us, there is a capacity to mold, as you know, Kevin, to mold oneself someone quite different from one's normal personality. And it's kind of rich, rich territory to explore. And I think that's why actors willingly embrace a life of such insecurity, really. Well, I've often said it's one of the few places you can get away with being someone other than yourself, especially when it comes to dreadful characters and not suffer any kind of, you know, any kind of dreadful life consequences. You can run away and play on the stage. And I'm, I'm to, to go back on something that you said about why we do this, I'm 
I'm quite loath to bring up a, a, a stereotype that I often hear people say that actors are simply trying to look for the attention that they feel they never got growing up, which I think is a bunch Absolutely of nonsense. Rubbish. I think it's rubbish. I think uh, I've, I've often heard of um, this comment made by figure skaters. Actually, I read a, I read a comment um, on Twitter today by the uh, great musical theater performer Kristen Chenoweth, who said, if there's something you can f- see yourself doing which gives you tremendous joy in life other than performing, pursue that because i've always felt that it is those of us who must do that that it is such and so built into our dna that there is nothing that will ever quite quench that creative thirst in the same way and so i often say when people say why did you choose this life i say because i must yeah, I totally agree. The idea that actors just like showing off is only true for children, which is wonderful. I love to see children showing off. It's the first step towards becoming one of the other personalities within one. But not the same as inhabiting a personality. Showing off is being in the shop window, and that's okay up to the age of 12. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. But you know, something, I, if you don't mind, uh, Kevin, I'd like to go back to is the Second World War and the effect it had afterwards on myself and the gang I went around with. We didn't say this to each other, but in 1945, the Americans had just dropped the atomic bombs and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. By 1947, the seeds of the Cold War with Russia, which had also, by the way, by that time got the plans for the atomic bomb. And we'd just come out of the most horrific, as you know, horribly cruel and devastatingly damaging war with millions of dead. And we didn't say this so much to each other, but we knew, wrongly, we knew that we wouldn't live very long, that we wouldn't have grandchildren, that the atomic bomb and the enmity of Russia and America and the general tendency, capacity for violence and cruelty in the human animal was going to be the end for us. And besides which, I don't think anybody mentions this now, there was an absolute certainty, which again proved we were wrong, that the world was going to starve. That there were too many people. There was a man called Lord Boyd Orr, Boyd Orr, who prophesied that we had to starve because they were there were too many of us, but gradually the human race amazingly produce much, much, much more food and now we probably are going to starve, but only because more people have been left alive because of food production. That's a kind of contradiction. But given the idea that we were doomed, it made us extraordinarily fanatical in our desire to live life 
uh, as fully as we could. And it made us terribly interested in the arts, in theatre, in, in... None of us were very musical, but I knew musical people who shared this unspoken urgency. We have to live now because we might not get the chance. And that tremendously motivated us. And I remember, bear with me, Kevin, I'm wondering about, let's flash forward 60 years, and I happened to meet with, well, it was arranged, it wasn't just happening. Harold asked me to meet him for dinner the night before he died. Mm. He went into his final coma. And he said, uh, Henry, I've had some bad news. I've only got about possibly three days to live. And it was a terribly sad moment because we were such friends. And something we listened to with huge pleasure during, before and during the war, during the war particularly, was a, a surreal radio show called It's That Man Again and short for Itmar, and all kinds of surreal characters will pop up, as they can on the radio, you see. And characters like a, a janitor lady would come up, and she would say, as she did her little scene the left, TTFN, and what did that mean? It meant ta-ta for now. And the whole nation of England listened to that. Ta-ta for now. And then she was in the middle of her scene would say, P-M-W-X-Y-T. And Tom, the, the chap who ran the show would say, what does that mean, Mrs. Mop? That was her name, Mrs. Mop. She'd say, don't forget to put the washing out on the line when it's sunny. <laughs> you know, some silly, funny thing, you know. And she'd go away and then, She'd say to us half an hour, and then uh, suddenly there'd be a bubbling sound. And up out of the water came a diver, a deep-sea diver. And he'd speak in a sort of water-sodden voice and have a scene. And his last line was always, don't forget the diver. And he'd disappear. And as Harold got into his car... His taxi, he turned to me and said, the last time we'd meet, he said, don't forget the diver. And I said, not off an hour. Mm. And it was a sad moment, to be honest with you. Well, that makes me but tear up. there we are. That makes me tear up. Yes, 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 yes. Um, there it, we are. Fact, and f fact or fiction, in 1957, you you were in Williamsburg, Virginia, and, and you commissioned Harold Pinter's first play, The Room, in which you also directed and performed in? Yes, that's right. That was that was in Bristol. It was after America. I went to Bristol uh, for a postgraduate course in drama. In that time, it was the only drama department in England. And... The reason I got permission to do this play was because Harold had written a novel when he was 22, The Dwarfs, a very good novel, and uh, written hundreds of poems. 
He suddenly said to me over a cup of tea, Henry, I've got the idea for a play. And he told me the idea for the play. And at the drama department, I'd realized they'd all run out of money doing beautiful productions of nativity plays and mystery plays about the life of Christ, which were wonderful productions, but terribly expensive, and they'd run out of money. And when I said, I have got a brilliant new play, not written yet, by the way, brilliant new play, how much will it cost to produce? And I said, in Canadian money, 75 cents. They immediately said, that sounds very interesting. So I called Harold up, and Harold, you've got to write that play. I think I've got production space. He said, I can't write a play in under six months. I've never written a play. In the end, he wrote it in two days, and he sent it to us, and we did it, and it was done again. And one of the top uh, drama critics in England, Harold Hobson, saw the production, and he said, here is a brilliant new playwright. And that was Harold on his way. So that was a very happy thing to happen. You received, and so did Harold, much accolades when you um, performed in uh, his work, uh, his work monologue, um, which was performed at King's Head Theatre in Hampstead and also on BBC. Uh, is that correct? And, and it was performed two weeks ago here. I did it on Zoom for a group that operates out of India, Australia, Germany, France, and England, all over the world. And they do a link, a Zoom and Skype link. And I did it on Zoom. I performed it on Zoom for them. And thank goodness I could remember it. I looked. I had looked at it a couple of days before. I hadn't performed it, though, for eight years. And it was a great pleasure to do. And I met someone in London at a performance of another play I was in. And this... Uh, woman, a very nice woman, said, do you know, I typed monologue for Harold, and he said, that's for Henry. But, and he gave it to her, so he wrote the play, and he let me do it first on television, and then uh, many times on the stage. And, but he never, being British, we never, he never told me he'd written it for me. He asked me to do it first, and it was very, very delightful to do. And I'll tell you the truth, Kevin, it's lovely to do just two weeks ago and think, hello, it's one of his best plays. And I thought, I can still do it a bit. I can still, uh, you know, it's, it, it was lovely to do. But I'm jolly glad he became famous, and I'm jolly glad because he is a great, a great writer, you know. An outstanding thing about Howard, he was tremendously careful about what he wrote. And a very concerned, but not enough to cripple the text. He wrote marvellous poetry and prose, really. And uh, not all the time, but a great deal of the time. The words in a play are just a scaffolding for what goes on 
between the lines, in the pauses, in the silences. That's where the play lives as well as when people are talking, especially in Harold realized that, of course, the silences and the pauses are terribly important, provided they are inhabited, yes. provided they're alive. Oh, you're speaking of one of my one of my most favorite soapbox issues that I'm always bringing up when I'm working with singers adjudicating festival is that the magic is in the pauses. The pauses are not your opportunity to check out of the out of the performance until it's time for you to come back in. It it is the pauses that where we find truth. This there is a tremendous um, energy that. I feel as an actor during those pauses that's created between the actor and the audience. It's a palpable and powerful moment. And to deny oneself of those pauses is really to deny oneself of a true theatrical experience, I feel. Quite right, Kevin. Hey, Kevin, you know what's worrying? We're agreeing too much. Great minds think alike. <laughs> well, well, it is, it is, it, it's been a long time coming. This is actually the first podcast in this series. We're on episode 90, well, we're in our 90s now. This is the first Come time on. I've actually had uh, a conversation about theater. And uh, I've, I have not, I've, I've wanted to do it, but I've also been mindful that for me, it will be incredibly self-indulgent because it is a topic that I love. It is a topic that I inhabit and, uh, and, and I feel that my perspective as, as much as it is, and I'm sure there's still much to learn, my perspective in, in, on acting is simply, is simply informed by my life experience and and I should think that would be the same for you, particularly during the time in which you grew up and carrying those memories with you must inform the way you act, the way you direct. Yes, that's absolutely true. What you say is absolutely true. But I tell you something in the ingredients that one one tastes oneself too seriously. And in a funny kind of way, I think one is quite entitled to take oneself seriously in one's life. But what it shouldn't do, and it often does, and dogma kind of creeps into this too, is dogma can stifle one's joy. And one's joy isn't just playing comedy. One can have experience great joy on the stage. Um, in a tragedy, you know, Hamlet is the most wonderful part one could play. Of course, I've never played it, but it, there are wonderful moments of joy. And if one can communicate that joy, it can be a tragic joy to an audience. One is serving play well, provided, you know, one is true to the play. Of course, the play is only printed in that form for economic reasons. What you and I said about pauses and silences, if they were published as they are played, they'd have 300 pages, yes. much too much. 
So the, the joy in the acting and what a director should bring out is the quality of joy, even tragic joy on the stage. But uh, what the, the lady who played the piano said to share that experience, but it not when one says share that experience, the terrible tendency is to take oneself too seriously, to not liberate capacity for joy, for experience, and for imagination. That's what it is. The imagination should be given wings, not just stifled by thoughts of dogma and stuff. But the thing is, uh, there are also terribly funny moments, uh, hundreds of them, thousands. I remember we were doing a we did, as I said earlier, eight different Shakespeare plays a week, touring with McMaster, and new McMaster, whom Harold Pinterest started with, as I said, about two or three years before me. And one day, we only managed to do eight different Shakespeare plays a week by starting out on a 15-week tour or so with three Shakespeare plays and we're performing the three, but in the day rehearsing the other five. So that was eight different Shakespeare's plus light-hearted thrillers and things like that on a Sunday because we were touring Ireland. So the Sundays were the day for sports. It was after confession, you know, the day before, and it was there were sports and theatre and jollity and so forth. And one day we were playing in the middle of the week a school's matinee in the convent school with the nuns sitting in the front row, and we were doing a rather stark tragedy, King Lear, a beautiful play, of course. And there comes a moment where a terrible daughter of the king, King Lear, one of his daughters, the most erotic one, Regan, who is utterly cruel, and she orders the blinding of Gloucester, an innocent courtier, and uh, he is tied to a chair, and Cornwall, her husband, blinds him in front of the audience, and the scene is so cruel and horrible that it's almost always played with Gloucester, the victim, facing away from the audience. Only Reagan and Cornwall are facing the audience. But Mac, our actor-manager, the actor-manager, as you know, would play all the leads. He played King Lear on this occasion. Take all the profits. Take all the, uh, you know, losses and stride about on centre stage, often very brilliantly. Mac was a brilliant Othello, for example. But on this occasion, Mac said, no, we're not going to have Gloucester facing upstage. None of that namby-pamby stuff. He's got to face downstage. He faced downstage, and the chap playing uh, Cornwall, who did the horrible deed, a man is still a friend of ours, and uh, Paxton Whitehead, a very successful uh, actor, English in origin, but works in the States, 
he concealed in his palm a blood capsule and a grape. And Reagan, the horribly neurotic Reagan, would say, after he blinded one eye, she says, the other two, one eye will mock another, the other two. And he plunges his hand into Gloucester's eye and seems to whip out his eyeball. And he squeezed my, the actor, at that moment squeezed a blood capsule in his hand and blood cascaded down Gloucester's cheek. And then he threw the grape as if it was Gloucester's eyeball <laughs> on the stage floor and stamp on it with that terrible squelch. It was horrifying. And three nuns in the front row fainted at the horror of it. They looked very picturesque. They looked like beautiful black and white puddles. And being actors and loving a bit of extra drama, we rushed to the wings when we couldn't have said to McMaster, Mac, Mac, three nuns have fainted. Shall we bring the curtain down? And he said, no, no, dear boy. We can scrape them up in the interval. They enjoy suffering. <laughs> and <laughs> it was a wonder, wonderful moment that the nuns had to lie there till they were brought back to their senses. Puddles of black and white. I'd like to go forward now. Um, here you are in Saskatchewan. You came to Saskatchewan eventually um, in... I think it was 1990 to serve as the head of the drama department. Is that at the University of Saskatchewan? I 1983. My apologies. 1983. Yes, and I became. And one of the wonderful things was I discovered. And I'm not saying this because it sounds the right thing to say and appropriate, but I realized that the Canadian students in Saskatchewan studying drama were so excellent for one strange, uh, several reasons. One, there were lots of very talented students, and the drama department in a liberal arts cam campus like ours isn't really for producing professional actors because there are professional acting schools like the National Theatre School, which spend all day teaching voice and movement and acting, Nevertheless, although the students at the U of S, the University of Saskatchewan, had to study various subjects, they do produce some excellent, excellent actors. But the general feeling I got when I was teaching was, what is the university liberal arts department for? It's above all to spread the love of the theatre to places like Carrot River, Porcupine Plain. There is such talent. There is such uh, lying below the surface, such a capacity for joy in these communities where they actors there are not going to ever be professional, but they are going to bring the delight in the theatre to the world. But good luck to those who became professional. They were terribly good. 
and are terribly good. And one of the great advantages was that the students were so cut off from geographically most other other theatres. In in London alone, there are over 400 theatres, big and small. So the students I taught in London sometimes would always come up with arguments about this. I saw this the other night, which is quite right, and they should do that. But the Saskatoon uh, students, they only had excellent Persephone and 23, 25th Street in my day. They have more theatres now, uh, some very good theatre groups here, absolutely. But um, they, by and large, are cut off. And so they weren't ever, in a way, intimidated by people who were brilliant at their craft. They learned their craft in a creative Bubble, as it were. Had the Shakespeare on the Saskatchewan Festival existed before you stepped in as artistic director, or are, were you the founding director of, of that festival? No, no I, I wasn't. It was um, Gordon McCaw. Uh-huh. That's what it was. And he still comes back, and we have a chat, and uh, when the, the, you know, the uh, over, as you. Yes, but I was on the first board. That's right. I was on the, the first board, and so I was in at the start of it. Then I took it over, and eventually, and I was there for 10 years, and they were the happiest years you can imagine, because I was not only directing Shakespeare, but I was also teaching at the same time, and also doing a bit of acting too. And sometimes I put myself on the stage, like a playing Polonius in Hamlet and Jaquiz in As You Like It. And, and you, must have, you must feel tremendous pride when you see what it's become. I know that you attended the, the unveiling, as it were, of the new Shakespeare in the Saskatchewan, the, the high-tech, yeah. uh, uh, well, it's more than a tent now, isn't it? Much more than a tent. It's so lovely to think it's thriving, better than it ever has. And it has a sound financial base, but not only a corporate base funding, but a huge generosity for individuals who have given hundreds of thousands of dollars to it. So it is a great joy to see. I must jump back in time for a moment because I'm so curious. How in the world did you end up being part of the original film cast of the Rocky Horror Picture Show? <laughs> well, I tell you what, uh, it's my wife's story. She was in the play. She she's a very success in England. And here, too, she's a very successful actress, Susan Williamson. She's one of the great directors we work for. It's Peter Brook, a famous international director. And Susan and I met in New York in a play called The Marassad, which you would have heard of. And it was a wonderful play, and we got together, and a few years later we got married. But Susan was in a play at a theater 
which was only a few streets away from where we lived in London. And in the interval, she came out and she saw an actor standing in the bowl of gold paint, uh, painting his legs and that sort of thing. And she, she said, oh, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm in this new play. It's a bit of a fill-in, but we think it will run the week. And I'm in the theatre upstairs. There was a small theatre upstairs. Uh, and uh, and Susan said, what's it called? He said, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I think it'll run the week, as I say. But it actually, as you know, ran for years. And and the film is re- revived every year. And, I, and it was because of the connection with the Royal Court, which Susan and myself used to work in quite a lot, that we got asked, to, I got asked to be in the uh, original film version. Fantastic. I was, I was so amazed when I, when I read that. Henry, in the time that we have remaining, um, I would like to leave some form of, of a gift, as it were, to actors who are listening to this podcast, particularly actors that are living in Saskatchewan. Um, and and I'd like to ask you this, and I preface it by saying that we're in very challenging times right now, going through the COVID uh, pandemic, and the theater and film world really has been um, decimated during this time all over the world, and Canada is no exception. The performance opportunities are were non-existent, and now they're rare at best and have been forced to take on a new form. So actors in this business and actors who had hoped to begin launching a career in this business have this challenge on top of it. But in general, I would ask you, what would you say to actors to to help them thrive in the times when the answer is no or thank you for your monologue we'll be in touch and you never hear anything uh, how do you make it through the the audition audition after audition of no's yes well i tell you what a certain amount of conceit is needed or to give conceit a, a better name, a belief in oneself, shall we say. But the thing to do, when every actor, including myself, are subject to periods of unemployment, and what I used to do with friends, I'd write a play, and we'd find a room above a cavern somewhere, or an English pub, and we'd put on plays, and we'd say to the chap, we usually knew them, hey, we've got a play here, and we'll put it on for nothing, and we'll just collect the money at the gate and share it with you, what about that? And very often, they just never give it way to despair at all. This is where self-belief comes in, and belief in the plays. They weren't just light pieces. We would do other plays, you know, not just written by ourselves, but we'd keep working and we'd keep enjoying ourselves and we kept our skills alive. That's what we did. 
So in, in spite of any monetary gain, just to keep the creative yes. self going. Hardly any monetary gain. The English actors had a great uh, compensation, though. They were entitled to unemployment benefit, mm -hmm. like American actors are, so they could keep going in times of unemployment, and uh, which uh, were quite frequent. And we kept our belief in ourselves going, partly because of the contact with the other actors, our friends, and sometimes people we didn't know. And we just say, would you like to be in this play? You're right for it. And so there was no need really to give up on acting. Mind you, it's a very easily said, but if you're an actor with a family, uh, you know, somebody's wife or somebody's husband, or if you're the breadwinner, it's easier said than done. You need a job, and it's no disgrace when you see actors being waiters or this, that, and the other. Uh, they have to keep alive. And the marvelous thing is, they quite a lot of them do keep alive, despite being a waiter or whatever, and despite the hundred no thank you uh, auditions you describe so well. They jolly well keep alive, partly because being with other actors, mind you, Kevin, I have to say this, there is a dreadful danger, and I've come across it right, that is, actors say, no, I don't mix with uh, too many people, not in the theatre. I find they don't understand me. I remember an old actor saying that to me, and I thought to myself, I wasn't impolite enough to contradict. But I thought to myself, that is death for an actor. An actor has got to meet other people, has got to inspire him or herself with other aspects of life. You know, other aspects of life are tremendously nourishing. Not just plays, but every kind of literature, every kind of music. These, unconsciously, they feed one's imagination. Like, I was so lucky, not just because Susan is an excellent actor, actress, <coughs> but to be married and have children and to take part in what in is usually called a normal life. No man could describe <coughs> the theatre as a normal life, but it is abnormal in the most creative way. But the I think what you said is so true. It is if one's whole identity depends on being a working actor, that is a terrible way to lead oneself into terrible depression. And there's no question that after being out of work for a long time, one can get very depressed. It isn't, it wasn't always necessarily easy to get a friend and write a play. Or the, no, there were long periods of depression and, one, well, of unemployment, shall we say, and one doesn't have to be depressed. I can jolly well not only join in the a normal life, but I can also be with other unemployed actors or employed actors 
or just people, when one cuts oneself off from life as it is lived by everybody else, it's too specialized a world, really, to survive. And every time I speak like that, Kevin, I feel more and more pompous. No, I think I think you speak from a place of honesty. I think I don't think it's pompous, and I don't think one should beat themselves up for having that emotional feeling. Uh, but one must find the support network to to um, to to pull themselves out of that stupor. And I think. If you view yourself as an actor as being terribly unique, that nobody quite understands me, that that I'll just uh, my my plight is more important than any other person's plight, and no <laughs> actor will. I think that 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 is pompous. That's right, dear boy. That's right. You know, but um, at the same time, having said all these things, and particularly now when the Theatre is in such a desperate state. If one despairs, that means one is totally, it's easy to despair and understandable to despair, especially for trying to feed oneself being an actor. But at the same time, it's a golden gift. You know, we spoke earlier about playing, about exploring the opposites of emotion on stage, exploring the comedy and the tragedy and the tragedy and the comedy. So perhaps a remedy for feeling that kind of despair is to treat it as a theater exercise and find the opposite of despair and play the opposite. Play, you know, fake it, fake it till you make it, as they say. You know, Kevin, those are why wise words and that last expression say that again think it till you make it yes think it till you make it yes very wise henry there's been nothing fake about this conversation i could talk the entire day away with you um Uh it is it's it's uh thirst quenching to be able to have these kinds of conversations uh, for me and I I hope so for you and of course it is Kevin it's a pleasure to talk to you and what's more you know the language of the theatre in and out and neither of us I think are really pompous at all about it or by that uh, we don't treat it as some especially rarefied activity that no one uh, should uh, bother about unless uh, a fanatic. Far from it, I think we're both rather open. Oh, it's a it's a privilege, and I've and I have always put my foot down, even during big scale productions, small scale productions, equity productions, where I'm being paid, and I want to often turn to fellow actors who are feeling miserable and and every and, and say it is a privilege to get hired to do what you love and to be paid for it. You have already won, so let. Go of all, all right. of that other stuff and enjoy the privilege. I think it's 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 it is it's a privilege. It's but it's a privilege for anybody to practice the profession that they love, that they studied. That's true, Kevin. I have been 
incredibly lucky to have this time with you. And it was nice to hear Susan's voice in the background. Um, That's right. She is so good. I want to thank you again. And I would like to close by saying something that my mom often says, which is just simply the abbreviation TTFN, which goes back to what you were saying. Ta-ta for now. Kevin, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, I look forward to us finally being able to socially interact in the same space. This is this is getting rather tedious now, not being able to, to be together in oh person. Boy. You're just down the street from me, and here we are on the phone because we can't be together face-to-face. Well, strange. It is. How strange. It well, is. Kevin, thank you very much, Cipolla. Hey, thanks for listening. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. Sascapes can be downloaded from iTunes, Google Play, the Sascapes app for Android devices, and all of the other major podcasting apps. Stop by and say hi to us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Sascapes. So tell me, what fuels the culture in your community? Who has a story that must be heard? Consider bringing Sascapes to your part of the province. Email us at sascapes at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Please share your thoughts on this episode or any of the episodes by writing a review in the iTunes Store or Google Play. Your star ratings help our audience grow. Remember, our stories are our legacy. Now, somewhere around the world for years to come, stories like those found in Sascapes are being heard. Think about it. We're creating an oral archive so that who we are in this province is never forgotten. I'm Kevin Power. Join me again next time. The Sasquatch Podcast is part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is supported in part by Conexus. So, the next time you're stuck in traffic for a while, here's some things to think about instead of why is the car in front of you going so slow? Or if the car behind you is trying to hitch a ride on your bumper? What if your bank was committed to working with you to achieve your goals? And what if they cared enough to get to know you? And what if they weren't successful until you were? Hmm. And what if your financial well-being drove everything they did? So come see why things are different at Conexus. Stop by any branch to learn more about how Conexus cares. Direct West is a proud sponsor of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. So is marketing getting in the way of running your business? Things like updating your Google listing, thinking of a headline for a billboard, or making sure your website is in good shape. That's where Direct West comes in. You can get local expert marketing help for your business at directwest.com.